We're grateful for you, brother. Thank you for leading us in worship once again, and thank all of you for coming this morning. It's good to see all of you. We're going to be in Judges chapter 14 this morning. Let me read it. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, as, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, so the young men I'm sorry, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. They said to him, put your riddle, tell Um, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. He said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that, 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 that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. By the way, I don't recommend that you call your wife a heifer. Verse 19, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil. And gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. 
This is the word of God. You can be seated. As you're being seated, would you please bow with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this history of the nation of Israel. Lord, unfortunately, this book is a sad book. Unfortunately, this chapter even shows us that even the leaders that were raised up to lead the people of Israel during that time were not the best leaders even. Father, I pray that you would please help us in this sermon this morning. Lord, please guide us into all truth. Lord, sometimes you lead us by example that we should do exactly as the people in Scripture that we're seeing. Other times you lead us by showing us what we ought not do. So, Father, as we compare two different people this morning, I pray that you would please help us to be moved to obedience and a greater love and devotion to Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Let me welcome you again to worship with us at Christ Fellowship this morning. I'm very thankful that you're here. I want to ask you this. How many of you have heard the statement? If you, if you have, just raise your hand for me. How many of you have heard the statement, God has a wonderful plan for your life? You ever heard that statement? Somebody used that statement? Maybe you've used it. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I've always had misgivings about that statement, about using that statement. Um, because the truth is this. I don't know if God has a wonderful plan for everyone's life, a plan that we would call wonderful. I don't know that. All of human history is moving in the ultimate direction that God has planned for it. And everything is as God wills it. He's sovereign over all the events of the earth. He's ultimately in control. But within that overarching plan that God has for human history, that plan that's ultimately moving in the direction that he does want it to move, there are actions and choices that go against what God has willed for the good of mankind. There are human decisions, both, both good and bad, and there are human decisions, both righteous and unrighteous, and those choices are done by men because they wanted to do them. We all go with our greatest want at the time. We always do. We always go with our highest want at the moment. And therefore, each of us will be held accountable for all of our choices, of course. Your life definitely fits into God's overall plan for human history. You're not here by accident. You are planned. Your life is planned by God. Just like he told the prophet Jeremiah that he knew him before he was even born. Now, that doesn't just apply to Jeremiah, the, the knowing of, of someone before he or she is born. That, that also applies to you. You're not an accident at all. So your life definitely fits into the God's overarching plan for human, for human history. And you play a part in God's overarching plan for human history. However, whether or not it's a wonderful plan depends on your belief in God's word and your submission to God's will. I'm going to say that again. Whether or not it's a wonderful plan 
depends upon your belief in God's word and your submission to God's will. And that's absolutely 100% true. We're going to compare two men today. We're going to compare two men. I've titled the message, Samson and John the Baptist. Because those are the, these are the two men that we're going to compare today. Would you believe me if I told you that your life is going to align itself more closely to either Samson or John the Baptist? Would you believe me if I, if I told you that? Um, I'll make my case for that as we go along. Now, you might be thinking, that's extremely simplified, Cohen. You're, that's extremely simplified. You're saying my life's going to align more with Samson or, or John the Baptist let me tell you, as we go along, you'll be convinced and you'll see that what I'm saying is actually true. These men have certain characteristics about them. and You're going to be more like one of them or more like the other, and that's just true. And you'll see how I can say such a simplified statement as we go along. Samson and John the Baptist share a lot of things in common. You've probably already picked up on this, and maybe even when you heard the title, you're probably already thinking, well, how do they share some things? Ah, yeah, they do share this. Oh, yes, you know what? He's right, they do share this. Maybe you've already thought about some of these things. But think about this. Both men had a parent visited by an angelic being to announce the birth of the child. Like we saw last week in Judges uh, 13, for those of you who, don't, who aren't here with us normally, we're just walking through Judges, um, we saw the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's mom and announced the birth of Samson. We know Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and announced the birth of John the Baptist. Also, they have this in common, both men had barren mothers, neither mother was able to bear a child. They had that in common too. Both men had parents who were told similar things concerning the prohibitions about the diet of the child. Remember last week, angel of the Lord tells the mother, you are going to conceive this child, therefore you are not to partake of anything from the vine at all. Why? Well, because what the mother takes in affects the child, and this child, we are told, Samson, was going to be a Nazarene from his birth. Taking, rather, what I mean is take the Nazarite vow, as it were, from his, ver- uh, from his birth. It was going to be put upon him. We're also told about John the Baptist in Luke 1.15, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. Again, he is put under this vow. Now, do we know for 100% sure that John the Baptist was a, had taken this Nazarite? Was he a Nazarite? Well, there's nothing in the scripture that says, yes, he was a Nazarite. However, we do see things about him that seem to suggest a similar devotion in that way that showed itself kind of like that. So these men probably both would have had similar diets, And probably also John the Baptist may have had long hair like Samson did just to show I'm devoted to the Lord in this way because that was very common. Your diet is restricted. Your hair's grown long to show this uh, vow that you've taken, this dedication to the Lord. How else are they similar? 
Samson's role was a physical deliverance of Israel. That was his role. We were told that last week. He was going to begin to free Israel from slavery to the Philistines. So his role was a physical deliverance from for Egypt. I mean, no, no, wow. For Israel. John's role was a spiritual deliverance for Israel. He was sent to prepare the way. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of your sins. Next, both men's downfalls were ultimately at the hand of a woman. Samson, he's got this wife, Delilah. They tell her, we'll give you money if you deliver him into our hands. She cuts his hair, makes that possible. John the Baptist, as you know, a young lady, dances for the king. The king says, I'll give you anything you want. She goes to her mother, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's what you should ask for. That's what the young woman asked for. And ultimately, it leads to John the Baptist's death. So a good handful of similarities. And if we were to dig, there's probably even more, which is why I believe a sermon like this can be warranted. I want to show you three areas that we're going to look at as we focus on these two men and how that applies to you and I as well in landing us in the camp of one of the other, really, of these men and how they lived. So we're going to talk about, number one, their passions. We're going to talk about, number two, their words, and number three, their results. Their passions, their words, and their results. That's where we're going this morning. So let's talk about Samson's passions. We saw in verses 2 and 3. Let's look there again. If you have your Bible already open there or your uh, device, let's go ahead and look at those verses. If you have neither, look up on the screen. Judges 14, verses 2 and 3. Then he came and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. And they say, don't you want a wife from the people of Israel? Meaning, you know we're not supposed to intermarry with them. And he says, get her for me. So he's got these passions that are not curtailed by the word of God. He's focused on the sensual. Are you seeing that? He wants what he wants. Now, did this part confuse you at all? Because we know that the word of God says that these Jews were only supposed to marry other Jews. That was one of his laws. That was supposed to be done according to the word of God. And then verse 4, did you notice this? His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Well, wait a second. I know there were contradictions in the Bible. I knew the atheists and the haters of Christianity were right. We just found a contradiction, didn't we? Because God says in the law, don't intermarry with the other nations. And here it says, it was from the Lord. How can that be? How it can be is just what I explained at the beginning. All of human history is going in the direction, ultimately, that God wants it to go. However, 
That does not mean that God is dictating every single one of your choices. Like I also said at the beginning, we do what we want to do. We do. Every time you've sinned, it's because you wanted to. And you always go with your greatest wants. I've told you that before too, and I always have given you the example of that time I got held up at gunpoint. Remember that? Five seconds before the gentleman came up, I did not want to give him my wallet. After he showed me the gun, I wanted to give him my wallet. I went with my highest want at that point. My want for my life was greater than my want for my money. We always go with our highest wants. And so, yes, it's ultimately God's will for things to be happening as they're happening. However, he does not will all of the choices that humans make within that ultimate will. You say, how can that be, Cohen? I don't, I don't get that. I'm telling you simply what the Bible says. That's my job, is to relay truth to you. Do I understand how it all works? No. And you don't either. Explain to me how Jesus walked on water. Like, tell me exactly how it was done. And you say, well, I can't do that. Exactly. But it still happened. And it's still true. And I still believe it. And I still glory in it. So there's other truths I can see like this that I can't explain exactly, but I can glory in them because my Father executes them perfectly. Perfectly. So it was ultimately God's will to do away with the Philistines. Does that mean it was God's will also For Samson to sin, did he want Samson to sin? No. He didn't want him to sin. But God's will will be fulfilled in the doing away of the Philistines. So Samson's controlled by these sinful passions that ultimately go go against God's law. And he'll be culpable for that on the day of judgment. He's focused on the sensual. Samson was controlled by sinful passions. Look at this slide that I've got for number one. Their passions, number one, their passions. Samson was controlled by sinful passions, as we just saw. He should not have done this. It was totally just sensual. I want her. It says he saw her and he wanted her. Like Adam and Eve in the garden with the fruit, it says Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was pleasing to the eyes, forgetting what the word of God said. It's what Samson did. Saw this woman. She's pleasing to the eyes. And he says, get her for me. John the Baptist, however, was driven by a holy passion. Samson was controlled by sinful passions. John the Baptist is driven by a holy passion. How do we know that? Well, let's look together. John 1, 29 through 31. John 1, 29 through 31. Again, similar men. Also, however, very different men. These two men. John the Baptist is driven by a holy passion. What is his holy passion? It says this in John 1, 29 through 31. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me 
because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. What purpose, John? Tell us what purpose you came for. That he might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist says, this is why I do what I do in baptizing men, the baptism of repentance. I want this man revealed to Israel. I want to reveal this man to his people. That's the passion that drives me, revealing him. I want people to look at him. And what we see with Samson, I want to look at her, and I want her because she makes me happy. And John the Baptist is saying, I've got a different passion, is that people will look to him. I want them to look ultimately to Jesus Christ. We fall in one of these two camps too. You are more driven by sensual passions or you're more driven by a holy passion that looks at Jesus. Your physical eyes control you more or this holy direction, this holy gazing upon Jesus controls you more. And some days it's one more than the other, isn't it? We go back and forth. We don't just live in one camp or the other. Well, if no, I'm going I'm to take that away. If you're unsaved, you definitely live in one camp. In the sensual camp. Because that's your nature as of right now. But as we saw last week, God gives men new natures. And it's the work of God. And only the work of God. However, even when we're saved, the Spirit still wars against the flesh. But like I also said last week, we usually struggle with the things of the flesh that we feed. If you're feeding it, it grows stronger. If you're starving it, it dies. So the more we're in the, in the Word, the more we're in prayer, the less we're exposing ourselves to the things of the Lord, the less we're going to struggle with them. So in direction, though, even as a saved person, you're going to be in one camp or the other more often. And if you find yourself over here in the sensual camp more often, one of two things. You're not saved and you think you are. Or you're here in that camp and it bothers you. And you want to be out of that camp. You want badly to be over in this camp. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. If it's bothering you enough to make you repent and do differently, like Jesus says, go and sin no more. So your passions are either going to be more sensual or more holy. And if you're struggling with the sensual, repent and ask God to help you. There is help for you. There is help for you. Listen to me right now. Look at me. There is help for you. And God will help you. However, you'll show if you're serious about that help. Won't you? You will. If you want to learn more about that, go two weeks ago to that sermon. Listen to that sermon all over again about what's real repentance look like. Two weeks ago. Listen to it online. 
Next, let's look at the words of these men. We see the passions of these men. Sensual or holy. Selfish or Jesus, right? Their words. Let's listen to their words now. Um, Samson wants this woman. The wedding gets arranged. So he goes there. He doesn't even have friends of his own to bring along. I don't know if you noticed, they, they gave him all these people. They said, hey, you 30 guys, you go be his, his best men, as it were. His groomsmen. There we go. Remember, Jesus even tells a parable about the friends of the bridegroom doing this and that. He didn't have any to bring with him. So they allot him some. And the words of Samson show a lot about where Samson's mind is. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. This supernatural event, really, it's it's pretty supernatural, and it gives us a hint of what's coming for Samson. This lion rushes upon him, and he rips it to pieces. See, before this, we don't know that he's got supernatural strength. This is the first clue that, ah, this is this man's superpower, is his physical strength. Rips it to pieces, like a young goat, it says. And so he, he uses that scenario of this lion's carcass being there, and then these honeys, I mean, <laughs> these bees, rather, using it to create their honey, make their nest in their hive. And we can see Sam, I mean, you can picture Samson. Remember, he cannot touch a dead body. You can just picture him very carefully scooping this honey out of this carcass without touching the carcass because that would have defiled him, and that was a big no-no for a Nazarite to touch anything dead. And so he thinks, hmm, this is an interesting scenario. Instead of using it to praise God in some way, like, this is amazing. I was able to do this to this lion. Oh my goodness, let me worship the Lord. He says, hmm, I'm going to capitalize on this for some financial gain. And so he uses this time at his wedding to get all these people together. And he says, verse 12, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And he knew. (laughs) He knew. Okay, this is an anomaly. Bees making their hive in this carcass that I ripped to pieces. This This is an anomaly. No one will ever get this. Instead of using it as an opportunity for praise, he uses it as an opportunity for physical, financial gain. Samson's words, number two, Samson's words pointed toward self. He was using his words not to praise the Lord, not to tell his parents about this amazing thing that happened so they could say, remember what the angel told us before you were born. You were going to deliver God's people from the hand of the Philistines. Maybe this supernatural strength is what he's going to do through you. Let's praise God. Even Gideon, he wasn't a great judge. He wasn't perfect. Even Gideon, we knew, we saw, knew when it was right to worship the Lord. When God did some amazing thing, he built an altar and he worshiped the Lord. We see no such thing here with Samson. The judges are getting worse and worse. I don't know if you've noticed this throughout the book. They're getting worse and worse. And his words point towards self. 
he uses his words for a riddle that no one will ever get. No one will ever figure this out. And I'll get lots of stuff for me. What about John? John the Baptist's words, they pointed at the Savior. Samson's words pointed towards self. John the Baptist's words point towards the Savior. Let's look at Luke 3. Luke 3, 15 through 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. Let me tell you my position when it comes to him. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing, his winnowing fork is in, in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Everything he says, he's pointing to another. He's pointing to another. He's pointing to that one who is to come. He's greater than I am. And, I, and here's my position when it comes to him. Do not get us mistaken, crowd. I'm not him. He's way better than me. I am focused on him and his greatness. And what do we see with Samson? I'm thinking a lot about me. And I'm going to think about how I can get more for me. Me and me. And John keeps pointing towards someone else. Someone else greater. He used... Samson uses his words wrongly. John uses his words rightly. And we also fall into that camp too, don't we? We fall into those two camps, one more than the other. Your words are going to be more about me, me, and me. I, I, and I. When I became a Christian, of course I was getting more sensitive to my sin. That's normal, that's natural. If you don't get more sensitive to your sin... I doubt you've ever been saved. If you have been made sensitive to your sin, congratulations. That's a, that's a good sign that you're in the faith. And God's doing that on purpose so you'll repent and be more and more like his dear son, Jesus Christ. And remember, as that process was happening, what I started noticing about my language is I talked about myself a lot. That's what I started to notice within the first probably four, five years of my Christian walk is I started to notice I talk about myself a lot. And this became especially clear when I went to Bible college and I was under some really great teachers there. And one teacher specifically, Dr. Snyder, showed me the importance of being a very good listener. And it was almost awkward how he was such a good listener, but then also calculated his words very well. He did not just throw words out. He knew the importance of using words and using words rightly and choosing them specifically. It's almost awkward, though. We would ask a question in class, Dr. Snyder, what about X, Y, and Z? And he would do this. I kid you not, he would stand there and he would look. <laughs> and he would say, I think this, 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 and this, and this. Or sometimes he would just stare for about five seconds and he would say, I don't know. I was like, is he, like, did he, is he having the symptoms of a stroke? What's going on? It wasn't that. He knew, I'm going to listen to your words so well that I'm calculating my response back to you because words are important. 
And he taught us also, he said something almost just in passing one day about how people talk about themselves so much. He and also another teacher, Dr. Green, really helped me understand this. And it made me start to think, I should listen to myself speak more. And what I noticed is I said the word I a lot. When we were in conversations with people, I noticed that I had this tendency of almost waiting for them to stop talking so I could then go ahead and say what I had already planned to say. It wasn't in response to what they were saying. It was just, I know what I want to say, and I'm just waiting for you to shut your mouth so I can say what I want to say. And I thought, wow, I'm I'm really self-focused. And that's what's being in the faith Longer and longer and longer helps you see things about yourself, right? It helps you see that you need to become more like Jesus in this area. And now you need to become more like Jesus in this area. And the longer I go in the faith, the more Jesus is showing about me. And now I need to be more like Jesus in this area. And I wish I could say every foot of ground that I've gained, I've kept. Like, now I don't, I don't think about myself very much anymore. No, <laughs> Oh boy, good thing my wife's not in here. She would be laughing as well. I still take two steps forward and one step back sometimes. That's just how the kingdom is. That's how sanctification is. Samson, we see, really used his words to make sure he was getting what he ultimately wanted at this wedding. And I really want to be more like John the Baptist. I want to be more pointing towards another with my words. John Piper said something once. He said, you should be so saturated with Scripture that it oozes out of you in your conversations. And he does that. He's memorized so much Scripture. When I hear an interview by him, maybe some other people aren't catching it, but I can tell just by hearing how he's talking, he just quoted a Scripture. He just quoted another Scripture. He just quoted another Scripture. I mean, it just comes out of him. He said, people should know you as like the Bible person. And he's true. He's right with that. And that's what we see with John, just always pointing towards Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And not so much about self. If he talked about himself, he talked about his position when it comes to someone better than him. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So number one, their passions. Number two, their words. What about their results? What's the result of all this chapter 14 here with Samson? Does it have a happy ending? It actually doesn't, does it? It doesn't really have a happy ending. Look at the end of verse 19. After all this goes down, they press the wife, basically say, hey, if you don't get this answer from us, we're going to kill you and your family. What great friends. And so she presses him and presses him, gets the answer, tells the people, and they say, ah, what's sweeter than a honey, what's stronger than a lion? They, they, they get it, and he knows If you hadn't used my wife here, you wouldn't have gotten this riddle. I know how you got it. Then he goes and kills 30 people, takes their clothes, and makes good on his word. (laughs) uh, So what's what's the result? At the end of verse 19, in hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So the end result, hot anger, and he didn't even get to keep this, this wife that he so badly had to have. Got to have her. No, that one. What about someone from Israel? Nope, her. Get her for me now. 
do it. He doesn't even get to keep her. Samson's number three, the results. Samson's selfish choices led to anger, and I'm going to add, and loss. Led to anger and loss, verses in the verse 19 and then 20. Selfish choices lead to anger and loss. John, however, John the Baptist's selfless choices led to joy. What do I mean? Look at this, John 3. This is really great. I just want to be so much like John the Baptist. Well, really, because he's just so much like Jesus and knows who to focus on. John 3, 28 through 30. So what happens is this. Jesus Christ starts his ministry. He's growing in popularity. All the people that used to be gathered around John the Baptist and listened to all his words are now going to Jesus and listening to all his words. A lot of people that used to come to John the Baptist to get baptized are now going to Jesus and his disciples to get baptized. So some of John's followers report this to him. They say, hey, you know that guy that you were talking about? Everybody's going to him. What should we do? We're, we're losing our crowd here. John the Baptist says this, John 3, 28 and 30. You, you yourselves bear me, bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, now he's talking about himself, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, meaning when I hear the bridegroom talking, I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So what do we see with John the Baptist's selfless ministry? Remember, he's not here to focus on himself. He even knows that this is even why I came, followers of mine. I'm supposed to decrease, and he's supposed to increase. That's where I get my joy, he says. This joy of mine is complete. This is a good thing. It's good that they're not following me anymore and going to him. That's why I came. I came to point to him. And what's the result? Joy. What's Samson's result of pointing to himself and trying to get everything for himself, even though it goes against God's word? Anger and loss. What's John's result of pointing to Jesus? Joy and completion, he says. I'm complete. This completes me when he is glorified. I'm complete. This sense of incompleteness is really a plague in the heart of man. It ruins all of us. It causes us to chase after things that would might make me happy because I feel incomplete. It's a plague in our nation to be discontent. Even commercials and ads and all these things are actually bred to make you feel discontent. So you'll spend your money here, so you'll go there, so you'll chase after someone else, so you'll be discontent. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. What do we see with Samson? Selfish choices lead to anger. John, selfless choices lead to joy. You probably notice now that these two men are falling into two different camps, haven't you? The camps are, one's focused on self and one's focused on Jesus. That's what you can really pull all these down to. Their passions, Samson's was his self. John's is Jesus. Their words, Samson's words, point to himself. 
John's words point to Jesus. Their results, because Samson focused on self, this happened. And because John focused on Jesus, this happened. Do you see that? That's why I said when I started, you fall in one camp or the other. Self camp or Jesus camp, really. You're always tempted to, Christian, by the devil to jump back in the camp you came out of. And what do you find every time you do that? Wow, this is great. I'm glad I did this. Now, isn't it always followed by guilt and shame and loss and hopefully repentance? But we have a Savior who's told us in his holy scriptures, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, Cohen, you mention that sermon almost every, I mean, you mention that verse almost every sermon. You know why? Because I love that verse. You know why? Because I need that verse. You know why? Because I do that verse. (laughs) You know why I do it? Because I fall. You know why I love it? Because it gets me back to the one who picks me up. Jesus Christ, the righteous. It makes me want to thank him and focus on him more and realize, stop focusing on Cohen. Cohen, you're supposed to learn that in Bible college. Remember the teachers told you don't talk about yourself so much? That's why you're falling or being like Samson here. So in conclusion, you're seeing the heart of the contrast between these men. What led to one's downfall? What led to one's joy? Your life fits into God's plan one way or another. It does. Because God's plan is moving forward. And nothing can stop it. Nothing can thwart it. God's not worried. His plan is unfolding exactly the way it's supposed to. And your life... Your life right now is fitting into that ultimate plan for human history in one way or another. But whether or not that plan is wonderful depends on how much wonder you have in Jesus Christ the righteous. Because guess what, sinner? He's your only way to be saved. He's the one who took the punishment for you, shed his blood, and took the wrath that ought to be yours. But he took it upon himself. And it didn't deserve to fall on him. But he completely, totally drank that cup to the last drop of God's wrath. So that you don't have to. You do not have another friend like that man. The God man. So do you want your selfish and sinful actions to be part of that part of God's plan that's leading us to the final judgment? Or do you want your righteous acts and your obedient acts and your acts of faith to be the parts of God's plan that's ultimately moving everything towards his ultimate glory? See, all of human history is moving towards the final judgment, and it's also moving towards his ultimate glory. Both are going to be true on the final day. There will be great judgment, and God will get great Glory also. Both are going to happen on that day. Both. Both. 
And your actions are moving you in one direction or another to be a part of the great judgment or to be a part of the great glory. Selfish like Samson or selfless like John the Baptist? Focused on the sensual or focused on the Savior? Consequences that lead to anger or blessings that lead to joy? Judgment or glory? It all depends on your belief in God's word and your submission to his will. Let's bow. Father, thank you very much for the truth. Most often, it is just very black and white as we're seeing it today. Most often, it is that way. And so, Father, I pray that you would please help us to simplify these things in our life that we might be confusing because of our own twisted understanding Lord, you say in your word, though, that we're not to lean on our own understanding, however. We're supposed to lean on you. And I pray that you would please help us to do that. I pray that you would please help us also to repent quickly when we fall into these selfish, sinful, sensual ways. Help us to run back to the Savior. Help us to focus on him again, think on him again, speak of him again. Where we find our greatest joy in our completeness. And we pray all these things in his perfect name. Amen.